We're going to read Psalm 122. I'll just pray real quick and we'll get started. Psalm 122, uh, titled, Let Us Go to the House of the Lord, a song of ascents of David. The Word of God says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, to the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for preserving it. Um, This was written thousands of years ago, and yet um, it is clear as day. Um, You are communicating to us. You are speaking to us through it. Help me to get out of the way. I pray that your word would be clear because it's your word and because uh, I draw attention to you and not to myself. Pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and that this uh, would be remembered as uh, about Jesus and about how he loves us and about how he has died for us and about how he has conquered sin, death, and hell for us. Holy Spirit, come and take your word and show the greatness of Jesus through it, Lord. Um, Help us all uh, through this to grow, to change, to, to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers as well. Give us the grace to do this now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, the Bible is truly about God dwelling with mankind. In the garden, in Adam and Eve, in perfect harmony. Uh, The Bible talks about in Genesis 1, um, Adam and Eve walking in the garden and being in the presence of God. God dwelling with mankind. And then sin enters the world. and, And because of that, God has to judge the sin of Adam and Eve. And he literally kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. They're literally now on a journey without the presence of God because of sin. Fast forward, the nation of Israel is created. And this is a particular people, not because of their their greatness or the morality or because out of all the nations in the world, they were the, the best or... the the most moral or anything like that, that simply because of the grace of God who wanted to select one people to bless the nations through. And he dwells with them. He dwells with them through through their journeys, through the wilderness, and then ultimately to a tabernacle. Uh, We've been talking about this in uh, the book of Exodus where God dwells with his people in a particular way through uh, priests and sacrifice and he gives them opportunity to be in a home with them, which they call the tabernacle. And so the, the, you could say that's where God is. And we can go be with him in a place. Fast forward, you have the temple. And the temple is even a bigger representation of the tabernacle. And again, a place where you can say 
the people can be with God through the rituals of sacrifice and uh, restoration that he provides. The Psalms of Ascent are about the restoration of the presence of God. It's about going up to be in Jerusalem, to be in the presence of God again in a way that is unique and special, in a way that was not like the pillar of fire and the clouds in the wilderness, in a unique and special way. And this journey to God, is, as we've been talking about in Psalm 120 and 121, is never perfect. It's always through trouble. There's a song that I love. There's an artist that I now love. His name is Zach Bryan. You might have heard of him. He's, some, he's huge now. Um, I discovered him late, which I always do. He has a song called Traveling Man. And the chorus describes what many feel while on this journey. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. He says, he says, there's some headlights burning down the highway. And I think that I may just hitch me a ride. Because I'm a traveling man by trade, sir. We're all running from the things inside. This idea of running from the things inside, when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's a little bit of Psalm 122, and I had to to get that in there somehow. (laughs) This idea of traveling, this idea of being restless, this idea of journeying back to God is all throughout the Bible. And specifically, this idea of celebrating the presence of Jesus is highlighted in Psalm 122. And Psalm 122 gives us a, a roadmap shows us what the restored presence of God can look like for the people of David's time and ultimately gives us a roadmap for the ultimate restoration of the presence of God for us. And so let's, let's look at verses one to five. The, the psalm breaks up into basically two parts, which I think is helpful for us. And basically what I want to do as, uh, as we go through this is I want to kind of answer some questions and hopefully you get some good answers from it. Let me read verses one to five again. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. David and the people would have sung this psalm, as we've said earlier, as they approached Jerusalem during their return. They, there was three holy feasts that they would have returned to Jerusalem for, and they would have celebrated one of the holy feasts and sung this song on their way. Though the road to Jerusalem was full of possible dangers, as Psalm 120 and 121 highlighted, the people sang because they anticipated the joy of being in the presence of God in this unique way. Again, God had not abandoned David in Israel, but in this particular feast where they get to be in the tabernacle, where they get to be in a particular place with God, um, this was a unique way. And so therefore, a a unique song that they get to sing. So the question I have is, why are the people happy in singing? Again, as I said earlier, they are happy in singing because they're going to the dwelling place of God, a unique way. They get to be in the presence of the Lord in a unique way. Again, the Old Testament is full of examples of God being with his people in special ways. But this is a more permanent and unique way. And therefore, they are joyous. Therefore, they get to sing. Therefore, they, David, as he sings this song, gets to actually say, it's like I'm there already. I can't wait. This is gonna, it's like the vacation that you have been planning for years. And you go, oh my gosh, I can feel the sand 
in my toes right now as I get up out of bed, right? He knows what this is going to be. He knows that the presence of God is going to be realer than any other moment that he's had in his experience to this point. And so he sings, he's happy. He is happy and the people are happy. There's another reason why they're, they're happy in singing. If you look at verse four, he says, we're going up to the house of the Lord. The tribes are going up as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. They're going up to give thanks. We know from Exodus and, and the Old Testament that Israel has plenty to be happy about. They are a people who are stubborn, who are rebellious, who do not obey God, and yet he constantly gives them grace, mercy, and adoption into his family. And so therefore, they get to go and say thank you in a special and unique way. They get to give thanks to the Lord. They're commanded to do this as a reminder of all the goodness and mercy of God that that he has shown to them. Man, I need that. Right? We all need that. We all need these reminders to go and give thanks to the Lord. And so they are happy in singing because they get to celebrate God's grace. There's a further point in verse five. Listen to this. This is pretty amazing. There, it says, in the tabernacle, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This is a statement of God's grace because of all the nations on earth. God chose by grace to give them the privilege to rule and judge, even though they were no better. That is pretty much the definition of grace. I'm going to bless you and allow you to rule and judge, even though you have no claim based on any idea of morality. I'm simply gifting you this. I'm simply saying, of all the people here, you get to to judge. You get to have thrones set up for you. And so it is, a, it is joyous, it is humbling, and it is amazing that of all the people in the world, they would, they would get to experience God in this way. And therefore they sing, therefore they're happy, therefore they can't help but to just get it out, right? So the question I also have is, how does that apply to us? Not many of us are going to Jerusalem, not many of us are thinking about it in this way. So how can we also find joy and sing? Well, there's one aspect. One aspect is that we can celebrate the current presence of Jesus. John 1.14 in the New Testament says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 actually uses the language of the tabernacle by stating that, that God dwelt among us. God dwells among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He literally tabernacles, it says in the original. And so God has tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus, and we are forever in his presence. How? Because we are moral people, because we have it together, because we vote for the right people and listen to the right songs and watch the right movies and say the right things? No, because his grace. Because Jesus has journeyed to us. He has incarnated. He has took on flesh. He has come to us so that he could die for us, so that he could be a man and and take what... Man could never take, which is the judgment of God upon the cross. 
so that he could be our substitute, so that he could live the life we could never live, so that he could fulfill the law, all the law of the Old Testament, no man or woman could fulfill. But Jesus did it all as your substitute so that you could be in the presence of Jesus Christ and, say, and God could look at you and say, not, not only not guilty, but forever righteous because of what Jesus has done in your place. He has fulfilled it all for you. We can currently now celebrate the presence of Jesus Christ. We can sing. <laughs> we can be happy because of what he has done for us. We have this reality now. We have this reality now. It has been won. And so in the incarnation, for the first time in history of mankind, God dwelt with his people. The father sent his son to take on flesh, be born of the Holy Spirit so that he could live the life we could not live. He is our substitute. This means we can have joy without the fear of rejection. Joy with security. Joy that lasts because our standing is not based on my ability to keep it together. Not my ability to perform religious duties. Not my ability to be better. It's based on the moral record of another. That is Jesus. He has done it so that I can have joy that lasts. If, if my joy was based on how well I lived, it would be a very sad existence. If your joy was based on how well you lived, it would be a very sad existence because it is up and down, right? There are moments where we help somebody and it feels as good as it can, right? Where there's, there's moments when we hurt somebody and we go, what am I doing? How could I do that? But that's our reality, right? That's who we are. We are up and down people. We have not figured it out. But Jesus has done it in our place. He has performed in our place. And so therefore, our joy is not momentary. It is not three times a year on a journey. It is now and it is forever based on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. That's how we can find joy and sing. And yet we don't always experience this joy, right? So, so another question that I have is what keeps us from this? What we, like everything I, hopefully, everything I've said so far is like, yes, I want that. I, 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 want that, I want to celebrate the presence of Jesus. I want to be in that joy. Well, there's a couple things that keeps us from this joy. First is our sin. We think that the presence of Jesus is based on our moral performance. And some of us think that God's presence can only be enjoyed when you've towed the line. I think that, right? How could I go to God after the day that I've had? How could he want to be in my presence? How could that be? It keeps us, right? Our sin keeps us from the presence of Jesus. It keeps us from this joy. We don't journey to God's presence by cleaning ourselves first through whatever it is, religious duties or following your own code of morality. Maybe you're here today and you have no religious desire. Well, you have a code of morality, right? You have a way that you think is right and wrong. Everybody does. And yet we do not journey to God's presence by cleaning ourselves first. Jesus earned all that you cannot earn. He towed the line. He fulfilled all the law required so that in God's eyes, you are worthy to be in his presence. Listen to Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Listen to 
the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind us that Jesus has done it all. Listen to what he says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's talking about Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, what's the conclusion of all this? Verse 16, what's the conclusion of Jesus being the high priest, right? Who has been tempted, who's perfect, who died a blameless death in our place. What's the conclusion? What should we draw from this? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you a sinner like me? Good. Cling to Jesus. Go to the high priest. Go to the one who represented you before God and died the death that you could not die and lived the life that you could not live. So that why? So that you could draw near and find mercy and find grace and our help in time of need. There's another reason that keeps us from this joy, and that's that we just don't see the need for this. I mean, I especially feel this. This is one of my biggest uh, sins, is that I just don't see the the need for it. Life is routine. I get by, right? I'm a semi-competent person. I can semi-figure out how to do this. I get by on my own, right? And so what this does is it minimizes my sin, and when I minimize my sin, daily repentance does not occur. And we, and we see repentance. We see this turning from a, uh, something that we think gives us joy, to something we think is going to provide happiness, which we call sin, right? Because God is the only one that per- perfectly provides that. And then we, 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 we repent, we turn to God and say, you're the only one. Why did I think that that was going to satisfy me? We see repentance as a pill too hard to swallow, and so we avoid that hard work. It keeps us from joy. It keeps us from the presence of Jesus because we don't go to him. We don't go to him and say, God, I messed up. I sinned again. Did it again. Same thing over and over again. Listen to how Tim Keller describes this. He says, in religion, we repent less and less often. And he's using religion as like a, a, a word, like, like religious, like apart from Christianity. In religion, we repent less and less often. But the more accepted and then loved in the gospel we feel, the more and more often we will be, excuse me, we will be repenting. And though, of course, there is always some bitterness in any repentance, in the gospel, there's ultimately a sweetness. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. The more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more you are able to drop your denials and your self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of your sin. The sin under all other sins is a lack of of joy in Christ. We don't see our need for the presence of Jesus because we don't want to repent. It's hard. It's hard. It's, it, we think it's a bitter pill. And in fact, it's an invitation. Repentance is an invitation to know and love Jesus in a deeper and greater way because we see 
our sin and we say, you really do love me. You know, you love me even though I've committed that same sin every day. That's amazing. And so it's it's an invitation to joy. It is hard. It can be painful. It will be painful. But it is uh, an invitation into the presence of joy. So there's two things that keep us from this joy. Our sin and our lack of repentance. Right? There will be trouble on our journey here. We will be tempted, as Zach Bryan said so well, we will be tempted to run from the things inside. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel that says that Jesus has done it all and that your sin cannot keep you from him and that repentance is a, is a gift to you so that you can come to him in new and fresh ways. When it's difficult, repent and come to him. Experience his presence that he won for you through his death and the resurrection. Let's look at the second half of the psalm. Let's look at Psalm uh, verses six to nine. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So David's kind of changing his view now, right? David had in view Jerusalem, being in the presence of God. And now he expands his view uh, to not only being in the presence of God, but to the people, right, who live in this place, to who live in Jerusalem. He prays for the peace of the city and its residents. All, it says, according to verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord God, for the glory of God. Jerusalem is literally the city of peace. And yet through its history, if you know, if you study the, the history of Jerusalem, you know that there's very few instances of peace being the reality. Uh, and because of this, it can rob the people of the presence of joy, of the presence of God. They can be distracted from it. Ultimately, according to verse 8, it says here, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be with you. According to verse 8, if Jerusalem experiences peace, then God's people will as well. Verse 9 tells us that if David does all this for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, so that God's presence will be enjoyed and their God, their Lord will be glorified. In short, verses 6 to 9 are a plea to make, to plead to God, to make the presence of God realized in the people's day-to-day lives in Jerusalem. He goes from this, like, you know, this, kind of more abstract, we're going to the presence of God to, I want you to experience, I'm going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem so that you can experience all that it has for you. Again, how does this translate to today? (laughs) We are, we do not pray for a city, right? We do not pray for a city. We don't, we can, we pray for Corvallis, we pray for Albany, I pray for Albany all the time. I live there and on my way to work, and when things start to make me mad, I say, I'm just going to pray for, for this. And, and we should be, right? But in Israel's time, there was Jerusalem. That was it. And so as we discovered earlier, we don't, we don't the, the presence of God is not limited to a place any longer. We can celebrate the presence of Jesus Christ now. Right? It's no longer limited to a place. It's no longer limited to a cloud or a pillar of fire, a tabernacle or a temple. It's no longer limited to a garden and it's no longer uh, limited to a centralized city like Jerusalem. Again, Jesus has accomplished the winning of our presence 
uh, or yeah, us being in the presence of God without being kicked out. We're no longer kicked out of the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. And so the reality is, is we have the presence of God secured forever because of Jesus. Again, this means we don't pray for us necessarily for a city like Jerusalem because we can now meet with God through the person of Jesus Christ and his people anywhere we gather. And for the church, right, we do gather as called out believers in local churches where the presence of God is on display. Listen to what Ephesians 2 calls the church. This is amazing. Ephesians 2, verses 21 through 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is literally called the temple in the New Testament. It is literally, if, if the temple in the Old Testament was where the people of God went to go meet and be in the presence of Jesus, or presence of God in a particular way, in a unique way, the, the New Testament, Ephesians, is making the argument that that's possible now that people can meet God by going to the temple, which is now the, is no longer a centralized place. It's wherever the church, the local church is gathered. They can meet God, not because, you know, I say God's in the front row, but because he said he calls people the presence of God in our place. Listen to what he says here. He says, in him, in verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when Christ ascended, after his resurrection, he sent his Spirit to indwell all his followers. And so by the Holy Spirit, God now dwells with his people. And though Jesus no longer personally present on this earth, his presence is still known in his church by the Holy Spirit's residence in each believer. We get to be the presence of God. We don't pray so much for a city. We pray for a people now so that, pe- so that the people can experience peace, right? If the church is healthy and growing, it means God is glorified. It means that they're experienced, we are experiencing peace and unity. And that is how this, this Psalm 122 ultimately translates to today. This means we pray for the church to experience peace, unity, and flourishing so that Christ would be glorified in our lives and the watching world would say, what is this? There might be something here. There might be something to this. There might be something to this. They would be drawn. We pray that they would be drawn so that they would meet Christ among us. Here's an important point. And this is kind of a side note. But this is why we guard against any disunity. That's why we can't let sin run rampant or unchecked in the church. That's why we can't let it go. That's why we can't be like, uh, it's okay. We'll just ignore that. This is why we deal with it. Because as a body, we advertise and market the peace the gospel brings. We are are a living billboard for what Jesus Christ wants to accomplish in this world. If we just turn our eye to sin. And I'm not saying like every little thing that we're like looking around each other going, oh, I think I see sin. No, but when we see patterns of it, we don't just turn our eye and go, oh, I don't really want to deal with that. I'm just going to ignore it. No, we, we, get, we get involved lovingly, humbly and gently and say, what's going on? How can I help? What, you seem to be having a hard time with this. What, what is it? 
Because if the body of Christ isn't experiencing that peace and that unity that that God calls us to, then the the people don't flourish. It's a horrible advertisement for what God is all about. Listen to how Ephesians 4 states it. Verses 1 to 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verses two and three are huge. I'm just gonna read that again. He's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. Again, we are not harsh with each other, right? We, and because we know, right, we know that we deal with sin as well, right? Whatever my brother or sister is dealing with, I'm dealing with in a certain way. And so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, we think about how God is patient to us, how he doesn't crush us, doesn't crush me for the thousandth time I've committed the same sin. And we go, okay, I think I can be patient, right? When I see somebody do something for more than one time. So with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing one another with love, that means helping each other, coming alongside them, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, are you eager? Are you eager to maintain the unity of the spirit? Do you have David's heart to pray for Jerusalem, pray for the people of Jerusalem because you want God to be glorified and you want the people to have peace. That is not a guilt trip by saying that is That is who we are as people. The, the God has called us together to be eager, to, to want each other to be flourishing, to want each other to hate sin, to want each other to celebrate the presence of Jesus because that's where joy is and that we would want nothing to get in the way of that. And so we love each other enough and we're eager to maintain that unity. Let me wrap it up with this. Um, we are like David in that we should always joyfully anticipate being in the presence of Jesus and his people. Yet we have even a greater hope. We have even a greater hope because we have the promise of forever dwelling in the presence of our Savior through him journeying to us through great trouble and trials leading to his death and resurrection. David looked forward and sang three times a year. Every moment of every day, we can joyfully anticipate being in the presence of Jesus. And we know there's one day, a greater Jerusalem that we seek in heaven. The Bible ends with Jerusalem coming down. We seek a greater Jerusalem in heaven that awaits us on our next journey after this life. This Jerusalem promises we will be face to face with our Savior with no doubts, no lies, no sin, no hurt, no interruption. Just joy. Psalm 1611 says it this way. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Go and be with Jesus. Celebrate the presence of Jesus. Let nothing get in the way. Do not wait to sing. 
sing and look for opportunities to sing at any moment in any day because he is calling you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He won't reject you. If you trust him, if you don't do it on your accord, if you say, I have nothing, Jesus, I want all of you. That is the only reason you can ever truly sing day in and day out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you that you care for us in this way. It's amazing. Help us to celebrate being in your presence. Help us to know that you love us, to, to not run, but to run to you. Help us to repent. Help us to believe. We can't do this apart from your work. Lord, help us to maintain the unity of this church. Help us to be eager. Help us to do it with humility and gentleness. Help us, when people see the way that we treat each other, they say, why are you so patient? Why are you so gentle? Help us to do that, God. We can't do it apart from you. So please, help us, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen.